Welcome to the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. My name is Jason Shoup, and I am the executive director of today's sponsor, the Association of Data and Cyber Governance. The association offers a discount on memberships for our podcast listeners when they go to www.adcg.org and use the code word POD. Today, we are led by our host, Jody Westby. We hope you enjoy the episode and don't forget to leave us a rating or a comment. This is Jody Westby, and today I have Donata Stroint Skilrud, who's joining us uh, to discuss privacy and security and the ABA's Cyber Legal Task Force. Donna is an attorney licensed in Illinois, and she's a certified information privacy professional. She is president and legal engineer behind Termageddon, an auto-updating website policies generator. She is also co-chair of the ABA's e-privacy committee. She's a member of the science and technology section. Uh, that's a, a section within the American Bar Association. So she's a member of, of the science and technology council. So that makes her on the leadership of the science and technology section. And she's a fellow of the American Bar Foundation. So welcome, Donata. So happy to have you here today. And um, I'd like to start off with asking you, though, to tell our listeners a little bit about Termageddon. It's an interesting business. And and so let us uh, share with our listeners a bit about what you do and what Termageddon does. Thank you so much for having me, Jody. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. So Termageddon, we generate website policies. So we create privacy policies, terms of service, cookie policies, disclaimers, and ELAs. Um, and it's basically wait, wait, a software. What's an ELA? Uh, an ELA. Uh, so an ELA is an end user license agreement for software licensing. And we're a software as a service. Um, so you purchase a license and then you answer a series of questions. So the first set of questions helps the software determine what laws apply to you and therefore what disclosures your policy needs to have. And then the remainder of the questions are around uh, those disclosures that are required. And then we create an embed code and the embed code goes onto the website's policy pages. And that's what allows us to make updates. So we track laws, bills, rules, regulations, enforcement actions, all of that kind of stuff. And when changes occur, we can automatically update our clients' policies accordingly. Very cool. I assume that you're having to make some continual changes to your software to accommodate all these state comprehensive privacy laws? All the time, all the time. Um, So we have a lot of new laws going into effect um, and we have a lot of new laws being passed and we have to continuously update the software because we manage tens of thousands of privacy policies for our clients. So it it is a full-time job for sure. Uh, I used to be, I spent, I began my career with 10 years in the computer industry and that included programming and systems analysis. So as you were telling me about this, what was going through my head was I had a whole lot of business process and thinking software change, software change. (laughs) We're discussing the the uh, generation of these policies in terms of services and end user license agreements. Well, so I'd like to focus today on the American Bar Association Cybersecurity Legal Task Force. I think it's it's technically the, the president's, the ABA president's cybersecurity legal task force. Is that right? 
That's right. Yes. Um, so all of us are appointed by the ABA president. And so tell us um, about your position. At, and we're going to abbreviate this a little bit, the Cybersecurity Legal Task Force. Uh, we're going to call it CLTF. So we don't have to say that mouthful every time we, we um, mention it. So what's your position at CLTF? So I'm the Science and Technology Section's Liaison. Um, so really my job is to keep the SciTech section apprised of the developments of CLTF. So like what resolutions are being worked on, uh, events, cybersecurity news, publications, volunteers. Um, so we have calls for volunteers, things like that. And then on the other side, I keep the CLTF apprised of what is happening in SciTech. So what events do we have? Publications, volunteers, um, people that are interested in cybersecurity, and what is the science and technology section doing on cybersecurity? What's the purpose of the CLTF? What did that, what what did the original uh, president intend that this task force do? How long has it been around? So it started in 2012, and it really looks over matters um, of how lawyers protect their practices and their clients' confidential information and intellectual property during a cyber attack. So that's kind of the initial purpose of the CLTF. Um, but what the CLTF does, so we collaborate and exchange information amongst the ABA, so the different ABA entities, and public agencies and private organizations. So, you know, sometimes we'll talk to the FBI or we will provide um, different resources for solo or law firm, uh, small law firms, right? Um, we also are kind of a clearinghouse. Um, so, you know, anything about cybersecurity, so cybersecurity activities, any policy proposals, advocacy, publications, resources, we kind of collate together and share that amongst the ABA. And then we also study and analyze uh, executive and legislative branch proposals on cybersecurity, um, as well as identify cyber-related issues um, for action by the ABA. So does the ABA want to come out with any new resolutions, any new policies, any best practices? Um, the CLTF also advises the ABA Governmental Affairs Office on cybersecurity advocacy and any responses that should be taken on government action. And then lastly, the purpose of the CLTF is to really educate lawyers and the public on cybersecurity risks, uh, how to protect data, how to respond to cyber attacks, and how to prevent cyber attacks as well. So there's quite a bit that the CLTF does. Um, that's that's wonderful because the attorneys have always been kind of what well, early on the troglodytes. I mean, they were the last, one of the last groups of professionals to get computers. <laughs> they were holding on to their legal pads. I remember when I was practicing law and at a couple New York firms, and they would always go, go talk to her. She knows computers. <laughs> <laughs> and so to have this kind of task force, the, pre, uh, the ABA president, when it was established, recognized that the legal community needed to have advice and input on dealing with cybersecurity issues. And so it served the ABA members so well during that 10, 11 years that it's it's really was a great idea. And as more and more topics come about in this very fluid and changing space, it is a great resource for members, American Bar Association members to 
turn to and to obtain information from about cybersecurity. Um, so what are the types of topics that you get into what and, and discuss? So we have a meeting once a month, um, and we also have meetings during the mid-year and the annual meetings as well. And we'll kind of talk about a wide range of things. So we'll talk about resolutions um, that concern cybersecurity, whether they're proposed by CLTF members or somebody else. Uh, we'll talk about new cases and new enforcement actions. Uh, we'll talk about new cybersecurity threats. Um, we'll have legislative updates. So we have legislative liaison that kind of keeps us updated on what's going on on the Hill. Uh, so we'll have updates on new laws, rules, regulations, things like that. We'll also talk about recent developments in the government, like the National Cybersecurity Strategy as an example. Um, and then we also have uh, events that we discuss. So I know the um, CLTF put on a showcase program at the recent annual meeting on AI. Um, so that's one of the things we discuss as well. And then we also hear from different speakers uh, from different government offices um, or from industry professionals and experts to kind of keep us up to date on the latest issues. And I think this is what's really important about the CLTF, especially for attorneys that do not practice in cybersecurity. Cybersecurity, there's so many things that change every day. There's always new threats. There's always new legislation. And if you're not in that area, those things are so hard to keep up on because there's so much. Like you have to study your field of practice and then you also have to learn about this. And that's why I like the CLTF is it kind of condenses that all of that information uh, for ABA members to a more digestible and quick and easy format. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned um, that CLTF also had some publications. Can you tell us about the publications that uh, you, you've got and, and what they cover? Sure. Um, so there's been a lot of publications by the CLTF, but maybe I'll talk about the ones that are the most recent. Um, so we have the Vendor Contracting Cybersecurity Checklist. Um, so that's actually a free re resource that you can find on the AB website. It's intended for small and solo, uh, small law firms and solo attorneys uh, who use vendors that have access to a client's sensitive data or a client's internal um, systems. And the purpose of the checklist is you can use it to evaluate the cybersecurity posture of those vendors and make sure they have everything tightened up so you can safely share data with them. Um, we also have the ABA Cybersecurity Handbook. I believe the third version was just released. Um, so that addresses current cybersecurity risks, um, talks about how technology works, talks about key legal requirements and ethical issues, and then talks about special considerations for lawyers and practitioners. And really its purpose, um, it's a guide for preparing and responding to cybersecurity incidents and threats. Um, so, you know, if you don't have a plan for responding to a cybersecurity incident, like a hack, this is a great way to prepare for that. So you're not kind of caught with your pants down day of. Um, and then we have the ABA journal series uh, and it's called Digital Dangers. So that talks about pressing issues in cybersecurity and the law. So a couple examples there's an issue on what does AI, blockchain, and GDPR mean for cybersecurity. Uh, there's another article talking about how obsolete devices that store data can still be compromised. 
Um, there's articles on how to learn from uh, cybersecurity incidents in different uh, fields. So, you know, whenever somebody in a different field has been subject to a cybersecurity incident, this article really talks about lessons learned and how we can use that uh, for our law firms, as well as cybersecurity insurance requirements, which are becoming much more common. Um, you know, more and more insurance providers are asking about cybersecurity um, and your cybersecurity posture because you know, they don't want to pay for cybersecurity incidents. They want to make sure that you're prepared and and don't have any. Um, so yeah, so it's a, basically a list of articles that talks about cybersecurity and how it directly impacts attorneys and law firms. For our listeners' benefit, the ABA Journal is the monthly magazine that the American Bar Association publishes. It's a, an excellent magazine and it goes out to members of all sections and so this series, is it a monthly series, the Digital Dangers series? I believe so, yes. So if you go onto the ABA website um, and you search for the Cybersecurity Legal Task Force, you can go to their homepage and then you'll see that um, it has it, it has collated articles uh, that have been published as part of the series. Um, so if you have, you know, you're, maybe you received the journal at home and lost previous issues or, or want to search or, or something like that, uh, you can find all of them on the website. Do you have to be a member of the ABA to access this material? No, you do not. Um, so you do not have to be logged in. Um, but certain items like the cybersecurity handbook, um, you know, you get a discount on on purchasing that item if you are a member. So it definitely always helps to be a member. Well, that is great because there are um, surely a lot of uh, perhaps smaller entities uh, that are solo practices or small practices that maybe are not members of the ABA. But to provide this information to anyone out there in the legal community or anyone else who wants it is a great service. And we will be sure when we post your podcast to include a link to that resource page of the Cybersecurity Legal Task Force so that our listeners, whether they're attorneys or not, can go out and look at the resources. Because although they're written for law firms, they're applicable to a number of other organizations as well. Absolutely. So you mentioned resolutions. And uh, that I'm intrigued with that. I think our listeners would like to know what ABA resolutions are and uh, what the Cybersecurity Legal Task Force has focused on. Can you tell us some more about the resolutions? Of course. So resolutions are essentially official ABA positions on certain matters. Um, so when the ABA comes out with resolutions, those are passed along to the legislative branch um, and they do impact the formulation of laws, rules, regulations, all of those things. So the CLTF has come up with quite a few resolutions throughout the years, um, but I'll just kind of talk about a few of them that have come out in the last year or so. Um, so we have resolution 604. That one is the one that we've kind of quickly termed the AI resolution, um, but it basically talks about developers of AI and the guidelines that they should follow. Um, so a couple of guidelines that the CLTF has proposed for AI developers. So developers of AI should make sure that their products, services, systems, and capabilities are subject to human authority, oversight, and control. Organizations should be accountable for consequences related to their use of AI. So that would include any legally cognizable injury or harm caused by their actions, unless they have taken reasonable steps to prevent those harms and those injuries. And also that developers should ensure the transparency, traceability of their AI, 
and protect related intellectual property. Um, so that one is a very, very interesting resolution. It has spurred the um, the keynote uh, speech on, I'm sorry, the annual showcase speech uh, at the ABA's annual meeting. Um, and it's, you know, very timely and very important, I think, with how much we are using AI now as regular people, as well as in our law practices. Right. And then we have Resolution 608. Um, so that one urges Congress to enact legislation establishing a duty to implement reasonable security um, for data, products, and systems. It also asks Congress to pass legislation that is harmonized with existing laws and rules and cybersecurity frameworks, as well as to provide incentive to, incentives to developers of digital technologies and to anyone that monitors and enhances their cybersecurity and protections and to also provide resources to consumers um, to take steps to enhance cybersecurity protections uh, and increase resilience to threats. And then we have Resolution 609. So that one urges attorneys to keep informed about emerging technologies, um, to understand different products, systems, um, and how to make sure that um, they are protected from unauthorized access, use, and modification. And then lastly, we have Resolution 610, um, which urges law schools to incorporate cybersecurity and emerging technologies into their curricula. Um, I think the last one, 610, is, is really, really interesting because when I was in law school, cybersecurity and privacy did not make the conversation at all whatsoever. Um, and when I talk to law students at the ABA now, um, it seems like you know a lot of law for a lot of law schools are. Um, creating classes around these topics, which I think is really, really cool. A number of the leading privacy professors from law schools around the country sent a letter to the deans of law schools in America and said, encouraging them to establish privacy programs. And that was in 2019. They sent the second letter in 2023, just a short while ago. So it's interesting. Um, in this space, how everyone has struggled to keep up with technology and the fast pace of it and the impact on their professions or their jobs or their lives. But as attorneys, you know, when we look at legal education, one of the laggards has been law schools, which I, I think is a huge gap and very important information that actually impacts other academic disciplines. So the fact that these leading privacy professors sent, had to send two letters four years apart and that the ABA recently felt the need to pass this resolution, then I think it's it's very important issue and one that, that is a, a, a glaring gap. Have you had any feedback from anyone after you passed that resolution? You know, not really. I think it's it's been good because it this particular one passed relatively easily. I mean, it was co-sponsored by the science and technology section. All of these were. Uh, I think it's something that nobody can really argue about, right? Um, there's so many concerns with emerging technologies as we've seen from the news, especially ethical concerns with attorneys using chat GPT to, to write briefs that come up with cases that don't exist. You know, um, we okay. see quite a few tell lawyers our, in trouble. Tell our listeners about that. Tell our listeners about that. So there was an attorney that was, um, you know, he had a case and he used uh, chat GPT to help him write the brief. And essentially he asked, 
ChatGPT to insert case law into the brief. And the case law that ChatGPT inserted did not exist. So it cited to particular cases, but those cases did not exist. They weren't in the record. It was false information. Um, and then he did not double check apparently what was in that brief and then submitted it to the court. Um, so he was, you know, got into ethical trouble for that. I believe he got sanctioned for it. You know, and it just kind of illustrates the fact that you cannot, you can never fully trust technology, right? You have to always double check the information that's produced by the software because a lot of the information that it produces is just false. Um, and I believe that there's a um, a judge who is um, considering bringing in ethical rules into his court, stating that you know attorneys cannot use Chat GPT when they're in my court or when they're submitting documents to my court, or if they do so, they need to disclose that. Um, so I think that's really interesting. That is very interesting. And that may be something the task force wants to take up and look at. Um, yeah. You know, lawyers' use of chat GPT. Because, you know, the fact that AI has been so disruptive, more disruptive than anything I've seen in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things I about it is that when the internet came out, it kind of evolved slowly over the past, you know, 30 years. It's been out for about 30 years now. and you think about ChatGPT was Sam Altman made the decision to release ChatGPT or, or, you know, AI, generative AI, and it has exploded. But part of that reason is it's turned a lot of our population into users. They weren't programmers before. They they always kind of watched what technology was doing and, and how the technological people, you know, made it happen. But this, they... They could get on YouTube, learn how to write prompts, and start using it right away. And so we now have the entire population of all different age groups doing this. So they're they're little chat GPT or generative AI programmers and and using it, but they don't understand the large language models underneath it. And these things can hallucinate. Hallucination is what we call when they come up with false stuff, false text, and in, in what they they write. And I don't think people really understand how often that happens and how important it is to absolutely check everything that you get back from chat GPT. And so I can see with associates and some of the assignments they're given and given short notice to do them, that it would be very tempting to use chat GPT. Um, And and, uh, I don't know, it'd be interesting to see what the legal task force would think about that and uh, help attorneys understand maybe how it could be used in a way that the profession thinks is all right. Yes, absolutely. I think with these tools, you have to be very careful not to lose attorney-client privilege. You know, if you are uploading your client's name and exact case facts into the software, you know, that information is shared um, and it can be used to train the model and and all of those things. Um, So you do have to be very, very careful not to break attorney-client privilege when using these types of tools. And I do believe the AB has some programming around that, but it's definitely something that the CLTF should take a closer look at. Yeah, it is. And I hope that you will do that. Are these resolutions um, available? Like, could we also have a link to the different resolutions and post it on the ADCG website with a recording of this episode? Yeah, absolutely. I'll send that all over to you. Um, You can always find that uh, for anybody listening. You can find these on the ABA's website as well. Um, If you just search the resolution numbers, but we'll put them in the show notes too. 
Okay, great. And so we'll have all of that. Well, tell us more about the current work plan that um, right now, what are the what are the two, three, four things that the Cybersecurity Legal Fast Task Force is focusing on? Sure. Um, so we recently got new chairs. Um, so I think ch- things will change up slightly this year. Um, so our goal this year for each one of the our meetings is to have an expert speaker talk to us about a particular topic. Um, you know, somebody from the government or somebody from the field, um, somebody who's really an expert in a particular issue. So we're definitely going to be focusing on that this year, um, as well as developing different events around cybersecurity. Um, we are working on a privacy institute um, that will come out later this year, uh, which I do hope will include some cybersecurity programming as well. Um, and then, you know, I think we're mainly focused on keeping everybody updated with the latest news in cybersecurity and the latest threats and what those mean um, to attorneys. So we have been talking a lot about the telecom industry um, and the threats being faced there, um, as well as different government initiatives around cybersecurity. So I'm very excited to keep everybody updated on that. Well, that's great. That's that's very good. How many members are on the task force about? So roughly about 50, but we also have a lot of floating members. Um, So if you have ever been a member of the CLTF in the past, you're welcome to attend any meeting. Um, And then we also have individuals just at large attending as well. So you can actually attend any CLTF meeting if you'd like to just listen in. Um, That's always available if you just contact the CLTF staff. Um, So we have people kind of floating in and out. Um, So we have quite a few people. I didn't know that. You know, I've served four terms on the CLTF and I didn't know that. Yes, yeah, um, so you can come I, and listen in anytime. I would love to know when the meetings are so I could maybe do that. Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. You know, you mentioned about privilege and I, I, I just want to go back to that for a minute. Um, I was on a, I, I, I practice law as well as do cybersecurity uh, and privacy consulting. But on the law firm side, I was having a client call one day and a person got on the call using one of these transcription tools that would basically take notes of the call. So we'd have notes after after the uh, call was done and, and it would have basically recorded and, and given us a, a summary of the phone call. And I said, uh-uh, you can't do that. Turn that off because we are talking about attorney-client privileged information on this call. And I don't want that going into some large language model database (laughs) that could then be in there. said, oh, didn't think about that. I mean, the the capabilities of these tools are very helpful, but in the legal profession, especially, there's a very interesting line in understanding the use of technology and maintaining your ethical obligations. Like one of the things I know the task force had really focused on in its early years was getting attorneys to understand that they do have an ethical obligation to stay on top of what technology is out there and to protect their client data. And that if there's a breach of the client data, that's more than just something a state breach law kicks in. It involves legal ethics rules or can involve them. And so I I wonder, is the task force still focusing on that when you're looking at these new technologies like AI? I think the task force is, is always looking at new technologies and cybersecurity risks for attorneys. I mean, that's what the vendor contracting cybersecurity checklist is for, right? 
is to make sure that these vendors are not sharing data and are not subject to data breaches. And I think everyone here is going to hate me for saying this, but please, please, please read the privacy policies of these services because you will see that that data is being shared with a lot of different entities. Um, great example, ChatGPT, when it first came out, within you know a couple weeks, it, it turned ugly. <laughs> um, so just like everything else on, on the internet that's of this nature, it became racist of all things. And they had to share the data with a bunch of trainers in India to retrain it to not be racist. And so all of that data is being shared and all of that data is being put somewhere. So you do have to read the privacy policies of these services and see who the data is being shared with, if anyone. But what a lot of attorneys don't realize is that you can actually have a local copy of ChatGPT on your own server, which means that the data never makes it to ChatGPT. So basically you have your own local copy, the data is not shared. So there's a way to kind of circumvent that. You know, I don't think many users understand what's underneath. So these large language model databases are largely comprised of data that has been scraped from LinkedIn, from Twitter, from from different places where they've been able to just scrape data that's out there. In the United States, data that is data that's on a website that's accessible can be scraped. That's not subject to privacy laws if it's you know publicly accessible. And there was this case, HiQ versus LinkedIn, where LinkedIn was trying to stop them from scraping the data, and LinkedIn lost. But in most jurisdictions around the world, data posted on websites is subject to privacy laws. And so our large language model databases have a lot of this scraped data in it. That's where they gathered this huge pile of information that they could train their um, generative AI tools on. And now they're talking about putting in synthetic data into these LLMs. And that is very concerning to me because that just, if you put synthetic data in, you could greatly increase the amount of false information that is generated. The chat GPT created a tool that they uh, put out there so organizations could use it to detect whether something had been developed by chat GPT. And they just pulled it off the market and they pulled it from availability because it had a very, very low accuracy rate. I heard 4%. Wow. And so if that was the tool ChatGPT developed for its very own ChatGPT software, artificial intelligence software, and it had such a low accuracy rate, I think it really stresses the importance, especially for attorneys, to check anything that they use and make sure that it's accurate and and um, something that, that could be used in a legal filing or in a legal document. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I do a lot of research on privacy laws. And I have to say, my main source of research now that I do is reading the actual law because so many of these blog posts are written by people who are not lawyers um, or people who are not you know, specifically in privacy law and it all just, just ends up wrong. And real quick, really funny that you mentioned the LinkedIn case. I recently got an email 
from a company that does marketing. Of course, it was an email without my consent, but okay. And the subject of the email said, now that the LinkedIn case is over and LinkedIn lost, we're going to scrape even more. And do you want us to scrape for you? And I'm like, you're sending this to a privacy lawyer. (laughs) Like, know your audience. This is not something I want to (laughs) receive. Have the states addressed scraping in any of their comprehensive privacy laws? Not specifically, no. Um, So they do have rights for consumers to delete information. And I'm going to guess if you delete your information, it can't be scraped. But it does. It's not really addressing that. I think right now the state privacy laws are just trying to get the very, very basics of privacy down, and then hopefully in the future kind of enhance those protections and talk about the more recent threats. Um, but at this time, you know, I think they're just trying to pass something basic first. Yeah. Well, you know, the EU with their Digital Markets Act and Digital Services Act and and um, their Data Governance Act that have now all been put into to force. Um, the Digital Services Act um, does apply to what they call intermediary services, which includes app stores, online marketplaces, content sharing sites, as well as you know some of some of the other types of, of online activity. But they may very well and they they have rules that are that are um, coming out that will be applying to companies in America. Now, it's an interesting question of how are they going to enforce all that? Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we're we're not doing much on privacy other than talk about it at the federal level and, and then deal with the comprehensive state laws. I predict this is going to be something the states are going to start looking at. I yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I hope the, the federal side starts looking at it as well because... We do need harmonization for sure. It'll be one more change for Termageddon. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I have an entire spreadsheet with changes. What's one more? Well, thank you, Donata, for being with us today. This has been really interesting. I hope that it informs not only attorneys listening, but other professionals to look at the American Bar Association Cybersecurity Legal Task Force for the resources they provide that are applicable to other organizations as well for the resolutions that they passed. And we will post links to the site as well as to the resolutions and and any of the publications that the Cybersecurity Legal Task Force has created so we can broaden the exposure to the good work that you're doing there. So thank you so much for taking time to be with us. Is there any last thought you wanna share? Well, thank you so much for for having me. And for anybody interested in the CLTF, um, definitely feel free to look it up on the ABA's website. It's AmericanBar.org. And then if you click the search button and input the Cybersecurity Legal Task Force, it will take you into uh, the homepage uh, where you can view resources and news as well and has a great uh, threat trackers on there. Uh, It has great news on there as well. So definitely check that out. That's great. Thanks again. Thank you, Jody. Thank you for joining us this week on the U.S. National Privacy and Cybersecurity Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast and want more content about the issues we've covered, you can visit www.adcg.org. The Association for Data and Cyber Governance is the leading association connecting all aspects of data management, cybersecurity, and governance. 
Our listeners can use the code POD at checkout for a discount on all memberships. Thank you for listening, and we hope you will join us next week.